This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles in today for Charles Feldman. As always, we'll bring you the very latest on the coronavirus pandemic. You know, we all know the six feet rule by now. That's the number scientists say can generally keep you safe from the virus. Well, you know what? We're six months in and apparently nobody knows nothing. New research shows that more distance could in fact be needed to keep you from getting sick. We're going to 10 feet. We're going to 12. Uh, New CDC guidelines raise the bar on who should get tested for the virus. So could this lead to more missed cases and more spread? Some of the scientists out there, they're not happy with these new rules. A former director of the CDC says this pandemic has laid bare the health care system that is in quote unquote tatters. We'll hear from him coming up. Students with special needs, they've had a hard time since the pandemic started. We'll get into how families are handling everything and what schools are doing to bring them back. And well, if you've gone out to eat, chances are it's been outdoors. But what's going to happen when the seasons change and it starts to get cold? Personally, I like to eat chili. (laughs) I don't like to eat when I'm chili. Blankets for everyone at their outdoor tables. Let's get back to whether the six-foot rule is enough for the social distancing. With us is Dr. Zihan Qureshi, pediatrician and global health physician at King's College Hospital in London, co-author of the new study. So, doctor, how far apart should we be to be safe? Well, I think there's two things to state. One is that these one to two meter social distancing policies are based on outdated science, science from the 40s and 50s and newer models that look at droplet transmission. And that's what this was based on, how far droplets go when we cough, when we sneeze, when we talk. They say that those droplets can go way further than two meters. They can go up to eight meters. And there have been examples in restaurants in China where people have caught coronavirus being over four metres apart from each other. So two metres is not a holy grail after which everyone is safe. What we need is a nuanced approach that says, okay, what is the risk in the situation and what is an appropriate social distance? And that's what we try to put forward in our research. We put together a traffic light risk table that says, okay, these are high risk, these are medium risk, these are low risk settings, taking account not just whether it's indoor or outdoor, but all sorts of other factors like what you've alluded to around ventilation, around mask wearing, around length of exposure to the setting. Is that a lot for people to try and digest? Maybe not now, but when we got going with this, was the six feet kind of just, okay, this is something we can all kind of visualize in our head. It's going to remind us not to get into somebody else's airspace. Uh, And then we can work on indoor versus outdoor and how we feel about ventilation a little later on. I think you're right in that a public health message is only as good as the implementation of it. I think some elements of it are easier to implement than others, like, for example, compulsory mask wearing or face coverings. If you make it the case that people can't enter a shopping mall without a mask, then they won't go in without the mask. Things around how you behave in parks or uh, in the privacy of your own home, again, a lot more difficult, but we can have a much clearer message that is more aligned to the science, and ultimately that will be safer for public health, and it would mean that we can have a more appropriate policy for the risk in each of the different settings that we get. 
Doctor, I'd like to get now to the criticism we've heard from one of our local experts here, Dr. David Agus. He's from USC. He says that your research misses the point. Uh, here's what he told us. He says most of the particles are droplets, and most of those drop to the ground. He says you have to be close to someone within the who has the virus for a long period of time to get infected. And he calls your study nothing more than noise. Your, res- your response to Dr. David Agus? Well, I mean, I, I respect Dr. David Agus as a fellow professional, but I'm afraid there is factual evidence quite to the contrary. I've already told you about the study in China that looked at a restaurant where people who were videotaped in a restaurant, having not been anywhere near four meters from each other, managed to transmit the virus. There have also been multiple studies looking at air sampling that have shown that people have projected coronavirus further than two metres from the origin of the person with the coronavirus. So it's very clear that coronavirus can be spread further. What isn't known is exactly quantifying that level of risk. But when we're in the situation of a global pandemic, it makes sense to be precautionary and avoid the second waves that we're seeing all over the world. This is Dr. Zihan Qureshi, pediatrician, global health physician, King's College Hospital in London, co-author of the uh, Six Feet Might Not Be Enough study. President Trump suggested several weeks ago that maybe there should be less coronavirus testing. It wasn't clear if he was just joking. Well, now the CDC has a recommendation that would mean less testing. Yeah, it says people who are asymptomatic, you know, no symptoms, don't really need to be tested, even if they've been in contact with someone who is, in fact, infected. Dr. Paul Sachs is clinical director of the Infectious Disease Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Dr. Peter Lurie, president of the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Dr. Lurie, any idea why this has changed? The whole idea behind testing asymptomatic people is so they don't go out there and spread it and not know it. Yeah, it's a real head-scratcher. Um, you know, I think, as you say, everybody's been suggesting more and more testing, um, and instead what we've encountered are a lot of shortages. Uh, it's almost as if by uh, changing the criteria for testing, they're trying to define the problem out of existence. Uh, if fewer people need to be tested, then there won't be as much of a shortage. The lines will shorten and so forth. But none of that is going to work well for the public health. Dr. Laurie, talk to us a little bit more about uh, asymptomatic people and the need for testing with them. Yeah, so, you know, more and more, and Dr. Sachs, I'm sure, can speak even better to this than I can. Um, We understand that asymptomatic uh, patients have an important role in the transmission overall of the virus. Um, And so it's important to try to catch them if we possibly can so that they can take actions uh, to protect uh, other people from getting the infection from them. Uh, But if we give up, in effect, which is a little bit what is being suggested here uh, with with this new guidance, and trying to find those asymptomatic patients, it's going to be very difficult to break the chain of transmission. Well, Dr. Sachs, let's bring you in on that point. There's asymptomatic, and if you can't catch them, they could be spreading it unknowingly, going places, or there's pre-symptomatic too, and if you don't get tested after a possible exposure, you might get symptoms later on anyway, and then you've still been outside because you thought you were okay. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, the estimates are about 40% of people have asymptomatic infection, but the closer you look, it depends on the population. Some people who are more vulnerable or have a higher exposure, it's a smaller percentage are asymptomatic. Uh, People who have maybe a a lighter lighter exposure have higher proportion are asymptomatic, but it still does contribute to ongoing transmission of the virus, which is why we recommend 
um, from infectious disease perspective, that people who have close exposure to a COVID-19 case do get tested. And, and Dr. Sachs, as a follow-up, just how concerned are you as a medical professional that this is just continuing to, to make things so unclear to just the typical Joe out there who, who says we're hearing one thing one minute, we're hearing another thing the next? It would be nice if we had a steady message that was driven by the science and by what we know about transmission of this virus. We've learned a whole lot since the beginning. We've learned, for example, that just a kind of trivial contact, just you brushing by someone in the street, isn't likely to give you COVID-19. But we've also learned that close contact, 15 minutes or more in a poorly ventilated area, a very high likelihood of coming down with the infection. So we definitely want to seek out the people who've had that kind of high-risk exposures. Yeah, Dr. Lurie, what do these new rules say about, you know, coming into contact and what you should do then? And then you expect people to even, you know, go to the CDC.gov website and start reading all this or just think, okay, I'm not really sure what to do at this point. Maybe I should get a test. Maybe I shouldn't. Can I find one? Et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, this entire pandemic has been characterized by very poor communication. And one of the uh, golden rules of pandemic management is a clear, precise, and consistent uh, me message. And that just is not what we're getting here. Um, you know, the concern, um, of course, is that uh, some of this might actually reflect political uh, pressure from the president. Uh, back in June, uh, you, you might remember the president saying, you know, when he was starting to see that the number of cases were going up again, uh, he thought that the problem was not that the cases were going up, but that testing was going up. And he said, so I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Um, I'm worried that uh, people are going to see this new guidance from CDC as being exactly that. Yeah, Dr. Sachs, not, not to get political here, but uh, further to what Dr. Laurie just talked about, the president has said, as he has said on multiple occasions, uh, that maybe we're testing too many people. Do you think there was some pressure? Could it be that we had some pressure from the administration on the CDC? Well, the CDC did refer queries to uh, Health and Human Services, which is, of course, uh, the, uh, you know, they are speaking on behalf of the White House. I will say that uh, knowing lots of people who work at CDC, they, they would clearly support testing close contacts. Um, and, and that is what we're doing at the state level. You know, our recommendations here in Massachusetts are that a close contact of a, of a COVID-19 case should be tested. And, and we'll continue to do that despite what the CDC guidance says. Yeah, and it's strange when, when you actually read the words. It says, you know, this is going to reflect what's based on the, the current evidence and the best practices, but there's no specificity in what current evidence might have changed. It's not like we suddenly discovered, say, that if you do have an asymptomatic case, that everyone that uh, you give it to is also going to be asymptomatic. It's a roll of the dice. You're just not really sure. This depends on a million different factors. Yes, exactly. There, there's no new evidence about transmission that would have warranted this change in policy. Dr. Peter Lurie, president of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, formerly served as associate commissioner, public health strategy analysis at the FDA. Dr. Paul Sachs, clinical director of the Infectious Disease Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital. This pandemic has put America's healthcare system to the test. Boy, has it. It was already strained with 28 million people and no health insurance, not to mention medical care that can be expensive, even with insurance. So will problems with the system get even worse the longer this goes on? KYW's Matt Leon talked to Dr. Richard Besser, president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, former CDC director who tries to answer that question. And the way this pandemic has been playing out across America so far, uh, it's hit every community, uh, but it hasn't hit every population the same. Black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans are 
are being hospitalized and are dying at rates that far surpass their percentage of the population. And one of the things that the things that's become more and more clear is that this pandemic is is revealing uh, a healthcare system that is in tatters. Uh, at the start of this, there were 28 million Americans without health insurance. And given how many people in America have their health insurance related to their job, with the, the devastation of our economy, uh, millions more are going to be losing health insurance because of this. And you know, I'm hoping that this will be a wake-up call for the nation to say this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that as the wealthiest nation in the world, um, we allow for a situation uh, in which there are so many people who don't have access to high-quality, comprehensive, affordable health care. It, sh- it should be a right. Where do we start if we're going to attack this? And I obviously agree that the health care were wildly kind of all over the place with it. Where do we start? Well, first is, is starting with acknowledging that the system that we currently have isn't working. You know, even for people who have health insurance, you know, whether it's employer based or others, they're finding that what they have to pay has been going up. Their, their co-pays, their deductibles have, have been rising. So for you know, the average working American, healthcare is, be, is becoming a, a luxury and not something that, that everyone can, can afford. So acknowledging that is, is part of it. Um, there are 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid coverage. Uh, and you know, if you look at what's happening in those states, those are a lot of the states uh, in which people of color are being hit the hardest because uh, people of color uh, lower income Americans are the most likely to not have employer-based health insurance and to be, to be unemployed. And when you lack health insurance during, during this crisis, you can't even begin to follow the recommendations of the CDC. You know, what they said early on in this pandemic was if you thought you had a COVID infection, don't, don't go to the hospital, call your doctor because you, you may be able to manage this over the phone. Well, what does that say to the tens of millions of people who don't have a doctor to call? What it says is, you know, you're on your own or go to the emergency room where if you didn't have COVID, you're, you're, you're likely to pick it up. And, and that's just wrong. So when, I mean, the, the thing about this crisis is it touches everything. And you talk about employee-based health care when you have millions of people being thrown out of work on top of the, the problem with what we've got the ACA, we've got the expanded Medicare. Do we need to rip the Band-Aid off and almost start over? Or are there pillars that we can build on that'll make this a lot better? There there are a lot of ways to get to health insurance for for all. And, you know, a lot of it splits along political divides. If we can start with a, a fundamental agreement that everyone should have access to high quality, affordable, comprehensive care, then we can move forward. You know, and the, the ACA expanded, uh, expanded health care coverage to tens of millions of people. Uh, and so building off that as a, as a starting point makes a lot of sense, but it's not the only way to get there. And so there, there, there first has to be this agreement of, of what, what do we think America should look like? Is it only that people of, of means should have access to, to health care? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that that's, that's the American way. I think there's agreement across 
the political spectrum that we're, that we're better than that. Uh, that the job you have or where you happen to have been born shouldn't dictate the, the future for you in terms of health. And while, while health care uh, is not uh, the only factor uh, that drives health, and in fact, you know, where you happen to live, the community in which you live is, is a much bigger factor. Healthcare is really important. And, and where you happen to live uh, will have, have implications in terms of the quality of healthcare that, that comes to you. Um, we have to address these issues. We have to address the issue of cost in healthcare uh, because we, we pay more for healthcare than any country in the world and we don't get the return on that. Uh, it's, it's not going to, to quality of healthcare. Uh, it's going to just increasing costs and profits. Nationwide, the school shutdowns have hit special needs students especially hard. Many have had difficulty learning online as they need in-person instruction and interaction. Tough for families. They can only do so much to try and help. Margie Wakeland, attorney with the Education Law Center, she also talks with Matt Leon about the hurdles that emerged in the spring and what we've learned for the upcoming school year. And for a student with a disability and for other students, but you know, particularly students with disabilities, it wasn't just that they're not making progress. It's that they were regressing in skills. So you may have children like a child with autism who part of autism is a communication disorder. So this, the instruction that many of them receive in school is really about, you know, highly structured about how they even learn what the purpose of communication is, how to communicate. And we've, we saw students who lost that, lost that, even that initial ability to communicate in that period of time. And so that was really, you know, devastating to families and, and certainly to students. And I know that we're going to have long-term consequences for our state. I feel this is an incredibly difficult challenge because I know a lot of people in education and I know a lot of people have worked really hard to try to juggle all these things, getting mixed messages depending on where they live and stuff like that. How big a challenge is this, not just from a logistic standpoint, but a lot of these districts are also facing incredible cutbacks to their budgets, and I would imagine this is going to hit here hard. I mean, how concerned are you big picture about this, given that? Yeah, I mean, we a priority area for the Education Law Center is ensuring adequate and equitable school funding. And we know that the economic crisis that has accompanied COVID-19 has led to less revenue being available for schools in Pennsylvania. And the schools in the spring, we did a lot of work in, in coalition across the state looking at school districts. And there were school districts that were doing really promising things. And we were lifting up what they were doing. And those were really in those districts that have more adequate resources in terms of finances than our low wealth school districts. And so in addition to, to identity of you know students who are living in poverty or students of color or English learners, like students with disabilities who are in districts that don't have those financial resources in those low wealth districts, those really were, um, they didn't have the resources that they needed in order to provide those alternatives that I was saying was necessary. And those are the same districts that we're seeing now are, are saying that they are not providing those individualized 
educational opportunities for students with disabilities during this next phase. And so we're seeing some districts that are proposing that um, alternatives for students with disabilities where they may be coming back, certain disabilities, certain students um, based on their needs may be coming back for in-person instruction because we know, one thing we do know is that the lack of in-person instruction really led to significant losses for students. Um, we have, there are studies that were saying that and the Pennsylvania Department of Ed, PDE, published some of those studies in their effort to provide information to districts about how they should be reopening. So those districts where they are providing those in-person learning opportunities are those districts that, that have more resources. And um, so I think that this is going to be a big concern. We have been advocating for more funding to be coming from the federal government and that the funding that does come, we really want to make sure within our state that we're distributing it based on using an evidence-based method that considers things like levels of poverty, considers you know, amount of students who are English learners or high levels of students experiencing homelessness. Because we know that, that those students were the ones who did not those access issues were the most difficult for school districts to solve and that require a lot of financial resources. Restaurants throughout the country have found many creative ways to stay open during the pandemic. Many of them, especially here in Southern California, but all over the country, have their tables outdoors so they can stay open. It's nice because it's summer, but what happens when, you know, it's cold? Winter is going to come eventually. Frank Ruffalo, managing partner at Il Culicino in Chicago, he talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about staying open safely when the temperature drops. Well, obviously, at the beginning of the season, we had a fully retractable roof going in, um, and that was meant to function as our private event space. Um, we're lucky we had it because that's really been our, our main dining room. People are really hesitant to sit inside still. Uh, besides that, you know, our capacity is severely uh, decreased. We're making sure everything's spaced out. All the tables are sanitized, menus are sanitized, and then obviously a bunch of uh, protective gear for our staff, you know, face shields, masks, stuff like that. And so as you move toward the winter, you're not going to either not able to do outdoor at all, or at least certainly not in the same way. Yeah, we're, we're pretty concerned about that. Um, Il Culicino does have the roof, like I was saying, but some of our other locations um, are just, you know, straight patio, um, you know, on, on the sidewalk. So we're very concerned. We're hoping that people will, one, kind of brave the weather, two, hope that we get a very mild um, fall, as we've been lucky with this summer so far. But we're just trying to pivot as fast as we can, get some outdoor heaters, and, and just hope that people will support us with carryout. Um, and still, even if it's a nice you know, day where it's 50 and sunny, that some people will be willing to, to come out and eat on the patio. And so even if you get heaters, you still got to reduce capacity over the winter yeah. months? Yep, absolutely. And the, with the roof, when we close that roof, that takes us down to 25% capacity because now it is an indoor space. So it's going to severely limit the headcount even more um, where it, it might not be feasible someday. So we're hoping that, one, there might be some changes in the city mandates. Um, and two, just like we were saying, that hopefully people still support with carryout and, and they remember to, to call the restaurant to place your orders, not use third-party services, um, and just remember that your local businesses are there to serve you and, and we're ready. We're taking any precaution we can to make you feel safe when you come in. Yeah, I'm sure it's been great just to, to serve customers and as a business owner just to get some kind of cash flow. But talk about the challenge for a restaurant owner, tight margins. You, you really need a certain amount of capacity in order to make money. 
Absolutely. When you go and you do your preliminary business plan, you don't ever think that you're going to have a 5,000 square foot restaurant and you're going to have to have 25% seating on that. Those numbers don't work out. Um, so it, it's very you know hesitant at this time to, to see what changes to make and, and how to make that function. You know, you're cutting menu items, you're, you're eliminating some staff because you don't want to you know have too many people in there when they're not needed. So there's a lot of changes we're making and, and we're hoping that, you know, we just make it through this and people come out support. And, and remember that, you know, these restaurants are on very thin margins as it is. So to reduce our capacity where, you know, you're at a quarter of the, the occupancy, those numbers don't always work out. Thanks for being with us. That is Frank Ruffalo, managing partner at Il Culicino here in Chicago. Okay, when it comes to enforcing quarantine rules, Australia is very serious. A woman was allowed to fly home to Perth, Western Australia, where she was told to quarantine in a hotel 14 days after spending a month in the state of Victoria. By the way, uh, that sounds terrible that she's <laughs> quarantined in a hotel. In a hotel. I hope there's a balcony or something so you can at least go outside. Although the only reason to go to a hotel is room service and having somebody clean your room every day. Without those two things, yeah. a hotel is just a room with a TV. I hope they leave food at the door at least. Uh, anyway, she was in Victoria and there's more cases there, so thus the quarantine. But instead, she hid inside a car that was being transported on a truck and crossed the border. She didn't tell authorities about that. They eventually found her 10 days after she showed up at her boyfriend's house, and they arrested her six months in jail. Wow. That's that's serious. Wow, but I also, her, like, at the great escape. Put me in the trunk of the car and put the car in a truck. I hope her boyfriend was worth six months in jail. <laughs> if he's going to be waiting for her when she gets out, that's the question. The things people do for love. <laughs> you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on the Radio.com app, Apple, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. And be sure to please hit the subscribe button.